Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOMS program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every Saturday without fail at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. And we give you a definition every week too, because public education is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. It is open to all children. It is a child's right to have an education. It isn't somebody else's um, right to take it away from them or to reject a child at the school gate. That is very important to us. It should also be public in ownership and control and, above all, public in accountability. Unfortunately, we have a dual system in this country. We have a denominational religious system, a private system, that is none of those things. But um, we have a press release for you today, and it's about teachers. We want to spend quite a bit of this, this uh, afternoon talking about our teachers because, like the health workers, they have really put in the hard, hard, hard yards uh, in this year of plague. And this is our press release, 860, which you'll find at our website at www adogs.info. As private schools scream about the loss of their international cash cow, public school teachers bring our children through the time of play. The business plans of the private education sector are in disarray. They have lost their international student cash cows. If they can't get it back, and soon they will be screaming, in fact they are screaming, for more taxpayer dollars to replace this vital revenue stream. So students are not just students, they are a vital in revenue stream. Victoria has more international school students than any other state or territory. There are more than 9,500 enrolled in 2018, primarily from China, Vietnam and Cambodia. Many tertiary students, we know, have been left stranded by the Morrison government, dependent upon charity and the gig economy. Yet private schools consider both international students and their parents, quote, an income stream. On Tuesday, the 22nd of September, The Age informed us that dozens of principals representing some of Victoria's most expensive private schools have written to the Andrews government to plead for the urgent return of international students, warning of cutbacks and closures if the ban on them isn't lifted soon. In their letter, the principals of these 36 schools say that the disruption to Victoria's multi-billion dollar international student market, they're not only a revenue stream, students are a market. This year poses an immediate existential challenge that has left many non-government schools without this vital revenue stream. While the federal government controls the nation's borders, the letter calls for the state government to work with the non-government school sector to develop plans for the entry of students no later than the start of the 2021 year. They're talking about quarantine hubs like they had for the... um, the uh, footballers. Some schools face potential closure, they claim, and significant job losses. 
if the international student enrolments do not recover. Signatories to the letter include the principals of Geelong Grammar, Melbourne Grammar, Methodist Ladies College, Brighton Grammar, St Catherine's Schools and Norriston Girls School. And there was the principal of the Kingswood School out in Box Hill that had quite a lot to say to the press. Premier Andrews is listening to their cries of woe and has set up a working party. His answer to their concerns will be very interesting indeed. But some of the comments to the article when it appeared in The Age say it all. A gentleman called Pluto said, Once upon a time, these schools managed very well educating locals. Now they tell us that they are on the verge of collapse if denied the money these students bring in. Their building programs have become just too big. And Tuppy said, terrible business, isn't it, running schools? I guess the trick is stop treating it like a business and more like a school. So public schools, unlike private schools, are not businesses. And running schools for local children is exactly what public school teachers have been doing on minimal pay and maximum dedication for their students. A small piece that I found in the Weekly Times, 23rd of September 2020, tucked in between all the advertisements and reports on wealthy boarding schools for the wealthy landed gentry, was a report on the work done by public school teachers in isolated parts of this state. For example, over there in bushfire-ravaged Malakuta, you have reliance on a single Telstra exchange and they don't yet have NBN. So, limited bandwidth has meant a very poor internet connection for the past eight months. So, what have the teachers done? They have gone out and taken all the work to the children in their homes. And the teachers of the East Gippsland Town's P12 College went above and beyond their duties to deliver hard copies of work, keep their VCE students on track for the studies and support all their local families through this year of the plague. In Hall's Gap, the primary school principal, Jarsan Trimble, said that parents had internet problems and could not rely on online learning there either. The community is lined on tourism industry and both the parents and the children need a lot of teacher support. There's a Wimmera Southwest network there of small schools and they call it their community of practice and this has assisted the staff of the um of the Halls Gap School and all the others, of course, with an adaptive program for its students during the remote learning period. The principals themselves have been quite isolated, so the fortnightly virtual meetings with the public schools across the Wimmera have assisted them greatly. However, it should also be noted that many of the principals of these schools are also teaching because they're not big schools. So in this year of the play, time and overtime for them have become meaningless. Dobbs note that 
like our health workers, public school teachers are the true heroes in the time of plague. So what are we going to do to reward our teachers and to tell them how much we appreciate them? We'll have a bit of a break and then Oliver will tell you what some of the proposals are up in New South Wales. Because as we all know, the New South Wales Teachers Federation and Angelo Gabrielatis, the president, are very, very active in uh, the welfare, fighting for the welfare of Australian public school teachers. But we'll have a bit of a break now. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Yes, well, we've been talking about the wonderful work that our public school teachers have been doing on behalf of our children all around Australia. And up in New South Wales, there has been an inquiry that's been set up into the value of teachers' work, and Oliver's going to tell you about it. The first round of public hearings by the Gallup Inquiry had from academics and researchers who validated teachers' claims that they were overworked, underpaid and undervalued. Expert evidence given over two weeks of hearings of the valuing the teaching profession and independent inquiry was strongly corroborated the very same opinions Federation members gave in response to a survey on workload, conditions and wages in March this year. President Angelo Gavrilatos reported to September Council on the remarkable evidence given at, hearing, at the hearings, as well as outlining Federation's policy goals as it prepares its case for award negotiations in October next year. Over the past two weeks, something remarkable has occurred, he told the Council. We had eminent academic after eminent academic researchers not only present their evidence in the first tranche of, of the public hearings of the inquiry, but also speak to their evidence at the public hearings. As they delivered their evidence, you, the teachers and principals, were vindicated and validated, overworked, underpaid, undervalued. In the first week, the inquiry heard evidence from academics and researchers that went to the question of significant and rapid change to the curriculum since 2004, coupled with new policy requirements imposed by the Commonwealth and state governments. The panel was told of the valuable role of teachers in society and increased societal expectations of them. The imposition of a massive, numbing workload through ill-advised and negligent policies such as local schools, local decisions, longer working hours compared with their OECD counterparts, as well as the IT skills required of teachers now, none of which existed in 2004 at the last inquiry into the value of the profession. Clinical psychiatrist Professor Ian Kiki stated the complexity of teaching has also been exacerbated by a rise in the number of students with a disability or behavioural issues. On the same day, a leaked department report 
showed the government had deliberately understated the number of students with disabilities in schools and its predicted rise. The second week of hearings also addressed dollar values, with Alison Pennington, a senior economist with the Center for Future Work, providing research that investing in teachers is the surest way to rebuild the economy and why investing in public education infrastructure makes good economic sense necessary to get out of the recession. Sydney University's Professor John Buchanan advocated a quantum leap, a 10 to 15% increase in salaries to restore historical relativities, recognising that teachers' pay had decreased dramatically compared with other tertiary-educated comparable professions. When we launched this bold strategy, we knew from the outset that we would be vindicated, Mr Gavrilatos told the council, breaking the contemptuous 2.5% salary cap, which has resulted in the flatlining of teacher salaries and the decline relative to other professional groups will not be easy. Through the work of the inquiry, we will deepen our member engagement, deepen community engagement, deepen political engagement, and through the communication strategy that has been employed since the commissioning of the inquiry to deepen our reach to change the narrative. Mr. Gavrilados said reports on the inquiry in print, electronic and social media and saturated the airwaves over the two weeks and generated an estimated 1.6 million in unpaid media. He pointed to some social media comment from members who said they don't want to pay rise, just more release time. Well, I put it to you, we want both, he said. We still have a lot of work to do, but we've set the foundations necessary to achieve of our policy objectives. We need time to teach and a competitive professional salary to attract and retain the teachers necessary, noting a massive increase in student enrolment over the next 10 years. Member witnesses who will provide evidence from the chalk face will appear before the panel in the weeks of 26th of October and the 9th of November. Well, there you have it. Up there in New South Wales, they're not sitting on their laurels. They're saying teachers are important members of our community and they should be recognised as such and paid accordingly. They are in Finland. They are in Germany. They may not be in the United States or Britain, but perhaps these are not the countries that we should follow. And uh, teacher salaries, like public servant salaries and the salaries for everybody in Australia, have flatlined over the last decades. If they really want our economy to grow, they want people to be spending money, then they should be paying decent wages. So um, that's um, all we have to say about the uh, inquiry up in Sydney, but we thought that some of our listeners would be interested in that. We'll have a little bit of a break, and then we'll come back and we will listen to a principal who uh, is associated with the Gonski Institute in New South Wales and see what she has to say about how teachers can be valued more. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see No, I won't be afraid Oh, I won't 
should tumble and fall All the mountains should crumble to the sea Just as long as you stand, stand by me. This is the Dogs Program. Here we are back again, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. And this, this week we have been talking about how important our public school teachers are and how we should value them. And we'd now like to take you to a public lecture uh, run by the Gonski Institute at the University of New South Wales, where they are talking uh, about Gonski 2.0, uh, where they recommended that teachers should be valued and should be given a lot of assistance while they are teaching and also while they are improving their professional qualifications. And we'd like you to listen to one of the principals from the Daisyville Public School. Her name is Michelle Hostrup, and we'll see how she articulates a way forward in the current, uh, I'd say it's a crisis of the position of teachers, particularly public school teachers, in our community. Hi, uh, I'm Michelle. I'm the principal at Daisyville Public School, which is just down the road from here, so it's very convenient for me. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about collaboration projects that I've been involved in and I'm currently involved in at my school. Um, when I read this uh, Gonski recommendation, I was really excited. I think it speaks to practices that are currently happening in schools and in the wider system. And I think beyond that, it sets up um, these practices as something really important and it provides kind of an imperative for us as a system to be thinking about collaboration and what that looks like. So I'm going to talk a little bit about things that I've been a part of um, and then the things that I've noticed that worked really well at that as collaboration, but also some of the things that I think we need to be thinking about. Um, and what I really loved in Tracy's talk was the sorts of things that she's talking about from a research perspective are the things that I feel like, you know, I've experienced here and where, where we go to next. So that was lovely to hear. Um, 
I think, though, um, the, the difference is at the moment we're not at a place where we do have embedded collaboration like Tracy was suggesting. We are very much at a short-term project-focused um, level of collaboration, particularly um, across schools. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things that I've been a part of. Um, one of them was the Eightsville Learning Frontiers project, which happened about five years ago now, involving schools from New South Wales, the ACT, Victoria and Queensland. Um, working across sectors as well. So it wasn't just New South Wales Department of Education schools, but schools from the Catholic system and the independent system as well, working together around specific themes and design principles. From that work, um, the New South Wales Department of Education funded system leadership grants, which um, for us, we were able to continue our work um, from the Learning Frontiers project. I know I've seen John go in the audience here, and I know he had one of those, and he was able to work with schools in a rural setting as well. It provided funding and it provided support for those sorts of things. And we also hear a lot about community of schools and different networks that are being set up at the moment. So I know lots of um, schools function within a community of schools program, and I know there are other things happening like the big schools network. So I feel like at the moment there are lots of things happening um, within the system that is is heading us in this direction um, and there's lots of learning experiences happening at the moment as well that's helping to set us up hopefully for the future. Um, in terms of the Learning Frontiers program, some of the things that worked really well for that was that um, it was based, first of all you had to apply to be part of it so you were working with a coalition of the willing schools that were really interested in the work that they were doing and really looking to extend that work to share it to refine it, to evaluate it, and then to scale it and see what would work across a number of different settings. And that was incredibly exciting. So for me, at the time, I was in a really small inner city school. I got to work with really large schools um, in less metropolitan areas with very different communities to mine and see if some of the things that we were trying in my school would also work in those settings. And that was really exciting to see. And it helped us to get feedback um, and lots of different things. I think the other thing that helped us was that we had, um, we were starting from a common ground. So we, we applied for this, we went for it, and we, we had a baseline. So we weren't starting from scratch, we weren't starting from multiple, multiple different perspectives with lots of different goals. We had a really clear common goal, which was around um, future-focused practice and innovative principles, but we also had these four design principles that helped to focus our work. So we actually developed a common language that we could work with, um, and that helped us to figure out you know, what was working, what wasn't working, and to evaluate our practices. And I think... Um, that when we come to collaborate, we need to think about the starting point. And if we had been schools that were coming from really not just different communities, but really different experiences and really different practices, the collaboration would have been really hard. So having that kind of common understanding, that common baseline, was, it was a great starting point for us. Um, in terms of the, the systems leadership work, again, we it was even more common because we were starting from a project that we already had and we were able to bring other schools on board, which was exciting, but within that had its own challenges. And I think part of the collaborative process for us was around establishing frameworks and scaffolds to make sure that that work was able to continue, that we didn't end up starting from scratch every time we had a meeting with people from different schools. We had to have really clear expectations. Um, and I think that um, was a really important thing in terms of being able to evaluate and refine what we were doing. So making sure that we had timelines, that we had scaffolds, that we had frameworks, that we had language, um, but also that we had time to be together to build the relationships that enabled us to have those conversations. So there were lots of different things that led to um, 
the collaboration being effective. Sometimes we had um, external people come in to ask us questions around what it was that we were doing, why were we doing it that way, to help move the thinking forward as well. So not only were we drawing on different schools, but we were drawing on people outside of our experience who could see things from a different perspective. And I think the exciting thing about this, part of the other thing, I, I love the idea here of the um, joint research projects, was that um, we were able to write case studies and we were able to publish them. And, and for teachers, it's not very often that you get the chance to engage in that kind of level of work. You know, we, we really are working kind of on the day-to-day. And I think this speaks to a bit of a shift in, in how the profession is able to view itself, but also um, how the profession is viewed. So we're seeing teachers as experts of learning, of what goes on in schools, and with the capacity to advise each other and to bring practice on. So not relying on going off to whiz-bang conferences all the time or paying lots for people to come in, but actually building, as Tracy was talking about, on the mid-career, what did you call them? The dream teacher of the middle. So seeing that expertise and really valuing it and being able to work with it and build on it, I think is incredibly powerful um, and very exciting. Um, in my current school, and I, I think just to, to speak a little bit about um, what Tracy also spoke about, those projects were time-bound. So we were funded, but then the funding ended. And actually, within a school, it's really hard to then continue doing that work because your funding is tied to other things. So I think as a system, that's something that's really important for us to consider if we are thinking about collaboration in a really long-term, meaningful way. Um, I currently teach at a Department of Education primary school, which means that we are eligible for some funding called Quality Teaching Successful Students Funding. Um, I love that bucket of money. It's very exciting. Schools have a degree of flexibility with what they can do about it, the focus being on improving teacher practice and what happens in the classroom and ultimately improving student outcomes. At Daisyville, we've used that in a number of different ways. So um, one way is I um, offer teachers the opportunity to put in an expression of interest to work on a particular project that they were interested in exploring further. So something that they had trialled in their classroom that maybe they wanted to spread across the school, something that they wanted to work on and really investigate. Um, so we've got teachers, one teacher is working on feedback processes and working, trialling different things in her own classroom, using some of that time to do research, using some of that time to go into other classes and test them, to team teach, to mentor, um, and that's been really exciting. Another teacher is um, trialling philosophy for children in our school to see if that's something that will work in our community. Um, and another teacher was working on looking at how we um, engage students in outdoor learning opportunities. All of those processes, again, had a scaffold and a framework with them. So by teachers um, doing an expression of interest, they had to identify who they were working with, what was their process going to be, how would it work, what evidence are they gathering, all of those sorts of things. So the collaboration was deliberate. It wasn't just a, hey, we'd love a gardening program, off your toddle, bring me back a good gardening program that has everyone involved. Um, there's a process to it. And I think um, that for effective collaboration for this sort of thing, um, we need to make sure that that process is embedded from the beginning. If we want to make it meaningful, if we want to make it powerful, we have to make sure that we are supporting it and scaffolding it for teachers. Um, the other thing um, we do is we have... Um, I've just made up names for things, so we have the special projects and we also have the stage release time um, where teachers could offer um, to work with a partner in their stage. I've got one cross-stage team. So they were buddying up to work on something that either they in their own practice had identified they wanted to explore a bit more or as a stage they'd identified that actually we need to think more about, for example, one team is looking at differentiation in maths. 
So they work together. They um, have a week off for one of them. So that will either be they might go into the other person's classroom and say, actually, I'd like you to observe how I set up the differentiated activities. And that person would do an observation that identify really clear features that they wanted to look at. They'd have a chat about it afterwards. And then they teach that same lesson in the second person's classroom, building on that experience. What um, I noticed at the beginning, because teachers are conscientious people, um, is that this was actually becoming a bit unwieldy for them because they wanted to do these amazing lessons and, you know, they were coming up with these three-page documents for a 45-minute lesson. So, again, with the collaboration, we had to make sure that it was um, really clear and that they were able to use work that they were already doing. So at Daisyville, we collaboratively program. So stage meeting time is not admin time. It's time for the teams to sit together, talk about what happened in the lessons that week, what do we need to go to next, do we need to revise this, those sorts of things, and they program together. And I do want to make a little distinction, which was something that I learnt through the Learning Frontiers project about the difference between cooperation and collaboration. I think it's really easy for teachers to sit in a programming meeting and say, oh, I'm going to do the writing lesson. Great, I'll do a reading lesson. I'll do the art lesson and talk about collaborative programming. But actually, that's not collaboration. That's cooperation. We're working together. We've agreed that we'll do different things. But there hasn't been any of this feedback. There hasn't been any questioning. There hasn't been any reflection. So those are the sorts of things that are really important in collaboration. Um, so with the, the teachers that are working on the maths program, you know, we then talked about the fact that actually why don't they just use a maths program that they've already collaborated on? That lesson would be really good. And then it means that the other people on their team are also learning from there. So there's that kind of broader sharing happening. Um, so I guess in terms of the lessons that are ongoing for me, and obviously nothing is ever perfect, um, I've kind of identified two aspects of support, and they're quite similar to what um, Tracy was suggesting. One of them is structural support. So for this collaboration to happen, we need time. Collaboration is hard and it is time-consuming and it is, it is messy. It's much easier for me to write a maths lesson, to go and teach it in my room, and then to go on to the next one great. Um, but it's not as rich. So I'm not getting any feedback from anyone else. I'm not having um, any new ideas thrown at me. I'm not improving my practice. But for that to happen, we need time. And at the moment, we don't have that time. So we don't have a guarantee. Quality teaching successful students is a, is a great bucket of money, but I don't have a guarantee for how long I'm going to get that money for. I don't have a guarantee about how it's worked out or how much I'm going to get. So it isn't something that as a principal I can rely on. Um, and I think as well, in terms of time, we need time for collaborative practices to develop. So it's not something that happens instantly. I can't throw that money at it and say, great, everyone in my school now collaborates. Because actually, even for teachers who have an existing relationship that know each other really well, developing collaboration is a, is a different set of skills, as, as Tracy was talking about. If teachers haven't ever really had to give feedback to a colleague, they, they need to know how to do that. They need to know how to ask useful questions that are, that are probing, that help that person to move on. They also need to learn how to accept that feedback and not take it personally and to see it as a way of building. So I think there's a, there's a, a need for us to, to slow this down and to, to know that if we want effective collaboration to happen, we have to be willing to put the time in and, and to wait, to wait to see the results, to give people time to to embed it and to really be comfortable with it. Um, and, yeah, the other thing is around that professional learning. I think we talk a lot about team teaching at the moment, and I have seen team teaching and I have done team teaching, and sometimes it's just two people standing in the same room. 
uh, with, a, with a lot of extra children in there. So I think, um, I think if we don't teach people how to team teach, if we don't give them time to program collaboratively together to actually know that this is the lesson we're teaching, this is the part that I'm going to lead, this is, you know, you could ask this question, all of those sorts of things, which again, massively time intensive, it's not team teaching, it's just a bigger group of kids with two adults in the room. Um, so I think that's something really important to think about. And I think the, the idea that, you know, when we look at collaboration, we don't want it to be an extra. Um, and I did a little Twitter survey of what um, people thought about collaboration in schools. And that was the big thing. People want it. Teachers want to collaborate. But A, they need time. And B, it can't just be one more thing. It can't be one more meeting. It can't be one more conversation to have. It has to be embedded in the culture of a school and in the practice of the teachers in that school, supported by the leadership of that school, but fundamentally supported by the system. So um, I loved hearing what Tracy said. I'm looking forward to hearing from Kathy and Tony and from everyone else in the room. I know there's a lot of expertise in here. So thanks. Yes, well, we've just been listening to the Daisyville Public School Principal, Michelle Ostra, who's been articulating a way forward for uh, teachers, how we can value them and how, how they can, in fact, make their lives more interesting and more fruitful uh, in their profession. But we're going to go over now to um, research that's been done on a very basic thing. In Australia, we tend to value people on how much we pay them, unfortunately. And our teachers are not paid uh, a wage which is commensurate with that of, say, the teachers in Scandinavian countries. But research has been done, and Oliver's going to be telling us about some Sydney University research on this subject. Over to you, Oliver. Oliver. Sydney University research has shown the need for a sizable increase in teachers' wages to be competitive in the present Australian labour market and to attract and retain quality teachers in the face of a looming shortage. Over a two-week period, 31st of August to 10th of September, the Valuing the Teaching Profession, an independent inquiry, has heard from experts and researchers who have detailed the increased administrative workload and expectations placed on teachers by the New South Wales government's devolution policies, such as local schools, local decisions, that have detracted them from their core focus of teaching and learning. As part of its deliberations, the panel examined research by the University of Sydney Business School on the dollar value of teachers' work, which concluded that their remuneration lagged significantly behind that of other professionals. The university's report to the inquiry proposed a pay increase in the region of 10 to 15 percent to restore the historical relativity between teachers and the average pay to all other professions. Lead researcher Professor John Buchanan told the panel on the 10th of September that teachers' pay has been declining relative to other comparable occupations in Australia for more than three decades. At the peak of their careers, teachers earn less than electricians, physiotherapists, public relations consultants and chiropractors, and are paid half of what lawyers and finance managers earn. If anything, all of our data understates how far teachers have fallen behind, Mr Buchanan told the inquiry panel, because those people in the top professions would laugh if they saw our calculations of their salary figures, because they are out by 30 or 40 percent at least. The claims I make for pay increases may seem extravagant, 
but the data on which they're based is, if anything, underestimating how far teachers have fallen behind. The research also found that while Australian teachers may have high salaries when they start out in relation to other OECD countries, their pay levels, their pay quickly levels out compared with other professional occupations, with more experienced teachers also earning much less than their counterparts in similar professions. Since 2012, when the newly elected New South Wales Coalition Government put a 2.5% cap on public sector wage increases, every state and territory except New South Wales and Tasmania, has significantly increased pay for its top teachers. The research also pointed to a current and looming teacher shortage. Increasing workers' pay is generally regarded as an essential ingredient in the development of any serious package to attract and retain workers. It's a really clear signal to the labour market for those who want to make a career choice to be a teacher, Mr Buchanan told the inquiry. There is a fundamental problem with wages policy in Australia. Change has got to start somewhere, and I would actually say start with teaching, if not teachers, who? The report stated, in practice, pay alone is never the solution to such problems, but equally it is difficult to overcome such problems without significant adjustments in remuneration. Such, such movements send a signal. In this case, they would make it clear that there was not just talk, but action about repositioning teaching as a valued occupation in society. Such a price signal could profoundly change Australians' career decisions at the beginning of their working lives. Well, thank you, Oliver. Uh, that was very interesting, wasn't it? It is about time we thought about the salaries of our teachers, as well as our nurses and our doctors. Uh, so we'll have a bit of a break now, there now and then we'll come back with a story, a very interesting story, that Dale is going to tell us. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio. Your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program. And without any more ado... I'm going to ask Dale to tell us about what happens when the children of the upper 1%, 10%, who think that they are entitled to everything our society has to offer them, what happens when we separate them out and then they think that they are entitled to judge everybody else as inferior to themselves? Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. Yes, I've got an article here which is, well, 
I would say shocking, but it's not surprising. It's everything that the dogs talked about, about segregating children and, and the repercussions of that. We are, of course, talking about the Shaw School from Sydney, which has been in the news a lot this week for good reason. After a pretty disgusting muck-up day uh, scavenger hunt, they were hauled across the coals for that. But uh, then they went on and posted some more social media content with the elite private school students filmed naming the worst Sydney suburbs. And it was just hours after students from the elite Sydney Shore School were exposed over the sick challenge. One of Sydney's elite private schools has been hit with another controversy just hours after the vile muck-up day challenges set by Year 12 students were uncovered. Students from Shore School in North Sydney have been filmed labelling some of Sydney's poorest suburbs as the worst in the area, with one student labelling residents druggos. The video was uploaded to TikTok by popular creator Fonzie Gomez and showed boys in the Shore School uniform being asked to name the worst suburbs in Sydney. A group of four boys all named Blacktown in Sydney's west as one of the worst suburbs. And when asked why, one boy simply says, because it's Blacktown, before another jumps in adding, yeah, Drugos. One of the other boys claimed there were too many Eshays in the suburbs. Eshays are characterised as groups of teenagers, mainly boys, that wear branded clothing, bum bags, and are often associated with muggings and violence. Other students claimed Bankstown in Sydney's southwest was the worst suburb, with one boy also naming Eshays as the reason for his answer, claiming they'll roll ya. Another boy branded Mount Druitt, also in Western Sydney, as the worst suburb, saying it was full of lame thugs and eshays. There was one student whose answer was very different to his peers, naming the affluent suburb of Mossman as the worst due to the rich kids living there. The video has since been taken down, and of course the Shaw School was not commenting on the video. This isn't the first time they've sparked fury with their TikTok video. The school was blasted last week after uploading footage showing off the campus facilities. In the video, students showed off the Shaw Recovery Pool, which is a small swimming pool for one person. There's a whole bunch of them uh, to get into after you've done exercise. And a Harbourview Library and a 50 mil gym. All of those are how the students themselves described what they were filming. The school later ordered the students to take the clip down, but not before it went viral with students from public schools using the video to show the stark comparison between their own facilities. New South Wales Greens MLC David Shoebridge branded the video as deeply offensive, saying it showed how unfair it was that private schools continued to get public funding. This video isn't the problem, David Shoebridge says. It's the fact that this richly appointed school gets public money while so many public schools are desperate for even the most basic facilities. The kids get it. Why don't politicians? Some public school students posted their responses to the videos of the affluent library and the Harbour View library. And um, one of the kids saying, you know, that they found feces in, in their toilet sinks in the schools and the stark difference between how one echelon of society's children are treated by the government and the disparity. Again, it harks back to what we were talking about last week with the OECD um, disparity 
reports. This is just the latest controversy, and it comes hours after a crime-filled rampage planned by the Shaw School seniors was brought to light, with some of the activities so vile that they were reported to the New South Wales Police. A rule book for the Year 12 students' muck-up day, which encouraged other school leavers to complete challenges in the Triwizard Shornament, was obtained by the Sydney Morning Herald. The document list included a list of activities for students to complete on Wednesday night with points given to challenges based on the level of difficulty. Some of the most disturbing challenges are students to spit on a homeless man, to sack whack a complete random walking past, to deck a stranger of their choice, to defecate on a train. Many of the challenges encourage students to take drugs, including to rail a cap or snort MDMA, rip a cone on the Harbour Bridge. Other tasks revolved around various sexual, and I might say illegal sexual activities and sexual assault, with one alarming challenge urging senior students to target girls under the age of 15. Um, there are also challenges to have sex with women that fill various categories, including a woman over 40 years or weighing over 80 kilograms or lower than a 3 out of 10 in terms of attractiveness. It's just pure objectification. And there's also one to sleep with an Asian girl, fetishizing people's nationality. These are the morals. These are what, uh, you know, they talk about values. Uh, these are the values that are being instilled in these kids. The Shaw School's headmaster, Dr. Timothy Pedersen, said the school unequivocally condemns the activities outlined in the document. The document appears to be the work of a small number of boys, which is obviously rubbish. Uh, the activities do not reflect Shaw's values or what the school stands for. It's already communicated to parents. But the issue with that is that it's still accepted like even though it got sent to the police a police spokesperson said new south wales police wouldn't uh, comment on shore school in particular but encourage students celebrating the end of high school to do so safely and don't make any decisions you'll later regret and this listen to this the police respect the age-old tradition of muck-up days but students must take necessary precautions so celebrations do not get out of hand and become dangerous. If you're drinking, don't get behind the wheel of a vehicle. And sure your friends don't either. Think before you drink. Alcohol affects it. You know, they're talking about illegal activities, but they're going, oh, but it's just muck-up days and we respect that tradition. Well, maybe they shouldn't respect it. Maybe they should, you know, actually do something about it. Because why respect it? A spokesperson said the police said, we're not here to spoil the fun. I'm sorry, but illegal activities, you know, that's your job. It's not fun, you know, especially when it comes at the cost of hitting some random in the genitalia just for fun. You know, that's called assault. That's not actually okay. So for the police to turn around and say they weren't there to spoil the fun is patently saying that... A, you boys are entitled to do what the hell you want and we're not going to get in your road. And B, uh, boys will be boys. That age-old misogynist excuse for the bad treatment of, of women and everyone else in society. And it just shows the level of entitlement that these kids feel. They're entitled to... One of, one of the things was to defecate on a, tr on a public train. These... Billions of your public dollars go to these kids. 
and we're supposed to say this is okay and the cops are saying oh it's just a prank it's just you know don't we don't want to spoil the fun just be careful in one of the articles the boys had a quote on the list of things to do for the scavenger hunt saying remember the boys code we protect each other at all costs so you know again it's a closing of the ranks around the privileged and it's pure elitist privilege and this is what you are paying for so congratulations on creating another generation of entitled sociopaths and it goes very deeply into our society as a as a child who grew up in the western suburbs of sydney and went to sydney university the shore grammar boys uh well you learn to stay away from them but um uh, it's great to see you so so um, revved up about this, Dale. Uh, but you aren't the only one, and there were a lot of people who responded to this article and pointed out that this this institution, which is an Anglican institution, is funded with our taxpayers' dollars. Not good enough. No, definitely not good enough. Also, the uh, police response is just... You know, if if this had have come from a public school, say from Blacktown, the police response would be remarkably different. And that is just taken for granted. And it's accepted as okay. And it's just not okay. It's not okay. It never will be okay. It never was okay. And it's time people started calling it out for what it is. It's entitlement. It's misogyny. It's racism. It's privilege. And it's basically pure evil. You know, anyway, that's my two cents. I'll shut up now. <laughs> we'll have a quick break now and we'll be right back with the Great State School. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now, we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now, it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is, and we fight for it every day, and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter.
Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. <laughs> Yes, a great state school. I'm sorry that Robert's not here to give you a great state school, but I'll do my best. And I've chosen a little school that we talked about earlier, Hall's Gap. Hall's Gap, where they're doing it tough with the lockdown and no tourists. And there are 52 children at the Hall's Gap our primary school. And uh, these children come from all classes of Australian society. There's actually some pretty wealthy people up there who send their children to the Halls Gap Primary School. And there are also some poor people up there that send their children to the Halls Gap Primary School. But because there's some pretty well-heeled people and some ordinary middle-of-the-road people, they, last year in 2019 raised 37000 privately for their children, for the, that little school, which is pretty good. Uh, there aren't too many schools of 52 children who have, are able to raise that sort of funding. Uh, and this means that all up, the uh, children there, one child is worth $12,909. They spend that much on horseback. But it is a small school and um, it needs it. Those children do need that, as we found out from the um, the principal, because it's pretty hard to get the internet and all the other good things that go with technology and the technological revolution up there in Hall's Gap. Uh, so uh, I think that they should be um, very pleased with that. They don't spend very much on their capital expenditure, unfortunately. They only spent about 6159 in dolling up the school. So I'd say the Education Department should be putting a lot more money in there and no doubt some of those parents, if they're prepared to raise that sort of money, 37000 they will be uh, telling Mr Andrews where he should be putting his cash uh, perhaps we should be also telling Mr Andrews that our taxpayers' dollars should be going to places like Paul's Gap and making sure that they get the internet rather than to these boarding schools who regard international students as a cash cow. Uh, they did pretty well in their NAPLAN tests. Uh, in fact, they, they improved considerably their reading tests, the children in Paul's Gap. So I think all in all, we should congratulate them for the work that they have done over the last 10 years in that school and above all, in the work that the principal and the teachers have done for the children in this year of play. So that's about it for today. We've had a pretty full full on, full on and full program and we hope that you enjoyed it and you'll be back with us next week but we would like to remind you to have a look at our press releases, our statistics and our um, media uh, on our website at www.adogs.info.
www.adogs.info. But from Dale and from Oliver and from me, it's bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.